0: Welcome to How Did You Think of That? My name is Temple Brandon, professor of animal science at Colorado State University. And I'm Sherry Quinn. I've got my kitchen, my vintage Hubble Space Telescope poster. There's my background. And when I think about the great questions of life, I look at the Hubble Deep Space Field. And now there's the Webb Telescope Deep Space Field. I'm gonna tell you something interesting about that picture. The scientists that did it, had a proposal that NASA thought was stupid. He wanted to point the Hubble at absolutely nothing, and he found everything. They pointed it right near the Big Dipper at nothing and found all those galaxies.
1: In this episode, we are joined by two winners of the Regeneron International Science and Engineering Fair, high school students Natasha Kolviwat and Salvik Cannon. They discussed the perseverance it took to not only land the prizes, but also to open the paths to their dream research. Natasha is the recipient of the Ferris Gordon E. Moore Award.
2: For my project, I did a human postmortem study. So essentially what I did was I compared the brains of people who... Uh, died by suicide, so suicide decedents. And I tried to see if there was uh, dysregulation in this protein, it's called Claudin-5, that modulates blood-brain barrier breakdown. And I compared the protein expression of people who died by suicide and people who were more like uh, controls who died by other causes. And what I found was that Claudin-5 was elevated in suicide decedents, which is indicative of that in suicide decedents, the blood-brain barrier broke down, which can have a very adverse neuroinflammatory effects.
0: I know what the blood-brain barrier is. I do know some neuroscience. And so what happens when it breaks down, just to make it really simple, is you get inflammation if the blood-brain barrier starts to fail.
2: Yeah, yes. So
0: those brains had inflammation. Yes. Yeah, I just listened. went to a seminar on veterans and suicide, and I... They tend to do it within the first year after they leave the service. Or the other time they found a spike is when the veteran got to be 50 or 60 years old, there was a spike. And I think some of that is when men get to be 50 or 60 years old, uh, they're not able to, they physically cannot do a lot of the things they did when they were younger. And I think that's hard for a lot of men. So you just mainly just looked at this protein that would affect the blood-brain barrier.
2: Yes, that was the first part of my study. And then
0: what made scientists think of that as something to look at? Because it's kind of counterintuitive.
2: Yeah, so and thank you very much for that question. Prior to, well, like developing developing this project, and what I did was I did a lot of lot of background readings. I think one of the photos they have on the website is me with like my three binders of literature review. And what happened was before I, um, I'm at the lab that I'm currently at right now, I did a lot of background reading, and all those other studies in their future research section pointed to clotin 5, that was the protein, and looking into blood-brain barrier breakdown. But those papers were pertaining to neurodegenerative diseases or strokes, so not so much psychiatric disorders. So I wanted to see if it could be applicable to suicide as well. So that's, after that reading, I drafted a research proposal, and then I, well, contacted the lab I'm currently at right now, and they accepted me to work with them
0: now when you did these um uh, was the interval between death and the lab work the same for both controls on the experimentals
2: yeah so the how i did my research were i did the brains were matched in quads so groups of four that have a post-mortem interval to be like around the same range that way it's not so much of a covariate to affect my results well that's
0: what i was thinking you didn't have to put in yeah. Time to analyze new lab as a covariate.
2: Yeah, you, so you
0: controlled for that. You know, yes, that's good. Was there anything different in how the brains were handled post mortem that could have done something to them between the two groups?
2: So th- th- those factors were like already controlled for when the groups were stratified into the quads, so they shouldn't have like affected the results because they uh, were. So hand- you
0: got to make sure there wasn't something where. Yeah. They let them get hot or something in one, and not the other. I mean, sometimes you just got to think about yeah. put them in refrigeration quickly enough,
2: yeah. or something like that. All the yeah, all the brains um, that I worked with, they were stored in negative eighty degree, like Celsius. Oh, so I, was,
0: okay. So they were stored there, but yes. then before they went to negative eighty degrees, was everything the interval was the same from when you know yes. the, when they died to when you got it into the minus eighty degrees.
2: Yeah, yeah. Each quad group were like in yeah. similar intervals, yes.
0: And then you don't have to use up all your degrees of freedom on covariates. Yes. And when you looked at the blood, you also looked at inflammation in the brain, along with the blood-brain blood brain yes. barrier degradation. Yes. That's really interesting. It's not something you would normally be thinking about, be looking at, at serotonin in one of the you know, emotional areas of the brain or something like that. You And you plan to become a research scientist?
2: Yeah, that, and I also would like to become like a pediatrician or a pediatric psychiatrist.
1: Satvik Cannon is the recipient of Regeneron's Young Scientist Award.
3: So my project is titled Bioplex. Um, to give a brief overview, any virus can go from dormancy to a full resurgence in a very short span of time. We've seen that with COVID. We're halfway through the Greek alphabet right now, and. Usually this resurgence is because of high infectivity. For example, with the Omicron variant, we saw extremely high infectivity because of its mutations, and then it started going across the globe. So these types of things, these high infectivity emerges from mutations, and we need to figure out what those mutations are so that the drug manufacturing industry, preventative measures can be uh, mobilized towards that. Now, What we saw last year, early last year, is we found this outbreak called monkeypox, now called mpox, and it suddenly came in May of 2022, with in just six months after May, we saw over 30,000 cases in the United States because of this outbreak. So it, it became of significance across different scientific papers that I read that they were trying to figure out why exactly this resurgence came up. Why is this high infectivity there? And what are the things that are causing it? But the problem is Mpox is such a huge virus that I I can't really say, well, what caused it? It's such a big question, right? So I honed in into a particular region of significance, and that's the DNA replication complex. What is responsible for actually replicating the virus, right? So if there are any mutations there, it's like your printer not working, right? If it prints too many copies, then that'll be a bad thing, right? So if there are any mutations there, that's what I really wanted to understand. To do that though, there was a big challenge in that the entire structure of this DNA replication complex was unknown. That is to say, the 3D structure. And without having the 3D structure, and if I have mutations, I can't figure out um, their significance. I can't figure out the role of these mutations without knowing the structure. So there was a twofold problem. First, I didn't know the mutations. Second, I didn't know the structure. So To solve this big problem, I developed this platform called Bioplex, which can be used to find the mutations and the structure using a combination of template modeling tools for proteins in conjunction with machine learning. And at the end of the day, it will give us the structure and also the mutations in the region. And one of the most important conclusions from the work was one of these mutations that I found was located in a region where it binds with the DNA. And... What that means is it's able to do its job faster and the replication becomes faster. And thus the printer basically is not doing its job correctly and it makes it faster and the replication is faster and the infectivity is higher, resulting in the 2022 resurgence we saw last year. But
0: then on the other hand, the infectivity was higher, but it wasn't as virulent. It wasn't as nasty. It wasn't as likely to kill you or... You know, so sort of traded uh, infectivity for nastiness.
3: Yes, because I've that always
0: true. always said in genetics, there's trade-offs. Everything takes energy. Right. So if you put your energy into becoming effective. Then you got to, you know, sort of rob Peter to pay Paul, and and it was less less dangerous.
3: Right. There was some like, if it gained infectivity, it probably lost some some part of its other features of the virus. So Are you planning to become a physician? No, for me, I personally, I, I like. field of computational biology. I really like it very much to the point where I think uh, in the future either I want to become a researcher in that field or something related to it. I want, it's, it just brings more and more questions. So whenever I just want to chase out
0: more and more stuff, like I read an article in Nature the other day about microproteins, little tiny bits of protein that used to be, was in the non-coding DNA, and finding out it's doing things in the mitochondria, because I can remember back in the 80s, because I've been around for a while, that uh, used to think the non-coding DNA was junk DNA. I never believed that. Never believed that. I said, well, you got to have an operating system for the genome. But now they're finding, there was an article I just was looking at this morning on, on little mutations that can change stuff in plants. You know, these are things that are non-inherited, you know, epigenetic stuff. Things are getting a lot more complicated. Right. <laughs> you have what you inherit, you have the code you inherit, but then things in the environment change it.
1: Natasha and Sotvik both had mentors that guided and inspired them along the way, demonstrating the impact mentors can have in one's future.
2: None of this research would have been possible without the support of my lab because, well, I'm just a high school student. I'm not going to have access to well brains right and for them to take me into the lab and allow me and trust me enough with access to them and trust me to work with them very meticulously and yeah they were just i'm very grateful for my lab and also not only that but i have a very amazing research teacher in my school I'm very fortunate enough to have her and my family is also a support system as well In regards to commuting to the lab, every single day in the summer, my dad would drive me there. So yeah, I'm very fortunate to have a very strong support system. None of it would have been possible without them.
3: Taking it right from uh, that, uh, the exposure which I had was a lot from my mentor. Um, I did in the past two years, my mentor really acted more as a teacher role than anything. He literally, rather than having him do everything, he was more of a teacher that taught me how to do work with these software. And then before I was like veering towards computer science more than biology. And then when I got exposed to that computational biology part, he really taught me a lot of the programs associated with it. And then for this MPOX research, I used that teaching that he had over the last two years. And in combination with some of the guidance he had for like the deep biochemical aspects of the study, putting that together was really what geared the study to what it is.
1: And what advice would you both give to other young scientists who would like to enter fairs like Regeneron and forge science
2: careers? I feel that the advice I've been given, although it's very generic, it's like oh, follow your passion. Um, I definitely do agree with that. You should pursue something you really like because you're going to be spending a lot of time doing it. And you want to make sure you do it not with the incentive to really like win any big prize or anything. Like when I first started, I, I never thought I'd be here at all. I just really, really loved what I was doing. I just kind of wanted to see where it would take me. So definitely do something you're passionate about. And an advice that I would give is to really like reach out and just follow your passions to the end of ends of the earth. Because when I was like beginning my research, I didn't think that I would ever be able to have contact with like all these really big shot labs, these big like professors and professionals in the field. And it was really that first cold email that I sent that really catalyzed like where I am today. Because well, I'd
0: like to hear more about that cold email. Yeah, uh, yeah. Because I'm very interested in how, how students get started into really, really interesting things. So you were a high school student, just a regular high school student. You sent an email. What Who did you send it to and what did it say?
2: Yeah, so I was actually 14. It was my freshman year. Okay. And I was already getting into research. I started research in like eighth grade in this area, like psychiatric research. And I sent an email to this professor. His name was Dr. Richard. So Lubin. you
0: already were reading journal articles yeah. about psychiatry. You were already reading yes. that like on Google Scholar and stuff like that.
2: Yes, because, okay. um, yeah, it was during the COVID-19 pandemic. And during the pandemic, a lot of my friends were faced with a lot of, well, like a lot of stressors, like inter- both like interpersonally right. and among themselves. And some of them would confide with me in like uh, suicide ideas. Right, so this
0: started so, the interest. Yeah, this started Friends that were having some mental health issues. Yes. And then you started looking things up on Google Scholar, probably. I'm very interested in how the pathway into (laughs) things, because this is really helpful to other people. So they were having problems, and then you started reading brain research articles. Yes. On Google Scholar.
2: Yes. And then one day I came across this article. I was really interested in it. It was about the role of the gut microbiome, like gut-brain access in pertaining to suicide. And the person who was the first author of the paper, his name is Dr. Richard Liu. And as I was reading the paper, I took it out and then I dissected it because it was the pandemic. I was bored. I didn't have anything- you had nothing to do.
0: So this is during the pandemic.
2: Yeah. And then personally myself, I'm very interested in the gut-brain axis. I watched a lot of TED talk, a lot of videos about it when I was like back in middle school. I was always interested in this field. Okay. Well then and yeah, and then I was reading into his article. I clicked on his name, and then I started delving into the rabbit hole of all the articles he's written. And I, by then, I probably read like 10 articles. That so in other words,
0: before you them. sent the cold email, yes. you had already read 10 articles yes. of the scientist you sent the email to. Yes. So in other words, when you sent that email, you could really demonstrate deep knowledge of his research. Yes. This it's is really I, important. I'm really interested yes. in how these back doors work
2: eventually, well, I wanted to email him because in a few of his papers, I was really interested in his future research. And I actually had an idea for like an add on on what he could possibly do. I was really interested in looking into like neurocognitions and neurocognitive deficit in adolescence, because adolescent suicide and suicide ideation is a very under researched field. But I thought it was very interesting, because I, I was an adolescent, so I had a personal connection with it. So I emailed him, but when I was looking h- him up and trying to find his email, I realized that his domain was well Harvard Medical School. So I wasn't gonna do it because oh, he's a big shot professor from Harvard yeah. Med. He's never gonna respond to me, and so I didn't really want to. Like I don't well, know, he I didn't
0: want do... to email. information that showed that you really read this research oh yeah when so, that professor looked at it he's going wow
2: yeah i was really fortunate in the sense that when i was oh. drafting up the email um well i had like i said my research teacher she was really like a backbone in like really reading my email and then going giving oh, me your examples. science
0: teacher proofed your email before it was sent in
2: yeah but i i told It was like i drafted it up and then i like read all those papers and she really had a big role in like i was saying before i wasn't going to send the email at all and then i told her oh i am really interested though but i don't really want to send the email and it was kind of her final call and then she said i think you should send it because you only live
0: once definitely definitely
2: And then from then, I sent the email. And then a few days later, I I, I still remember. I was sitting in um, one of my like ELA classes. It was like ten a.m. in the morning exactly. And then I opened my inbox, and then I see that he responded. And then he said like, "Wow, like thank you so much for your email." And he actually read the entire email. And I, it's not an understatement when I say that that email that I wrote was really long. I know people recommend don't write too long. How
0: long was the email?
2: I think when because I dropped it on Google Docs. It was like two pages. Singles. Okay,
0: yeah, that's a long email.
2: Yeah. It was a really long All email. Right, I, I feel that. like professionally you should not do that. But, but, but the I was thing like is, afraid. is
0: that when he started to read it, I have people send me rambling nonsense yeah. emails. But when he read it, he could, oh, you could see, you had read the papers. You really knew the science. And he was looking at it and going, wow. Thinking about on the other end, I get tons of correspondence. <laughs> And I get sometimes some super interesting correspondence, and then I get a lot of stuff that I just accidentally on purpose don't answer. Okay, this is a big long email. How did you open that email? Like the first three or four lines? Because you got to hook him to get him to read yeah, that. Yeah, I did. I'm okay, pulling... tell me what you put in the first few lines of that email. Should I pull it up? Like, it, it's... Maybe you should be <laughs> pulling it up. Okay, because sorry, give really me time important. to pull it up. I'm really, really interested. And how smart students get into wonderful careers and and showing students this is something you could do. Now you read I see a two page email and I kind of go, ugh. Okay.
2: So reading, this is the email thread. All right.
0: For him to read a two page email, you had to have the last five lines. Yeah. Get him hooked. So what was in the first five mi- oh, lines? Email? I said, dear Doctor
2: Lou. My name is just typical introduction for a sentence. That's and then fun. I and that's said, fun. That's
0: normal.
2: Uh, I said, I have read many scholarly journal articles regarding the use of symbiotics in treating depression, anxiety, and suicide. And I am especially interested in your article. And then I named the specific article yeah. that Okay. I really wanted to drill into. And then, oh, my gosh, I can't believe <laughs> Sorry, I'm just reading this, jacket. I have, like, a wave of nostalgia. But you had a
0: great opener there. He didn't even know you were in high school when he first started reading that. Yes. <laughs> he didn't say, I'm a high school student. He said, oh, it... you're reading your research, then you name a paper, then you describe what you learned in that paper, and then you had a question about it.
2: Yes. And then I said, "In I think this sentence was what got me the mentorship, maybe. Um, I said that I would like to propose to research the relation of manipulating the um, gut microbiome and its relation to uh, neurocognitive deficits in depression and anxiety. And then in my next sentence, I talked about how this could essentially, if this could have an impact in like changing the way we view like the effects of antidepressants. And the, this is the medications used for anxiety effects but that of yeah, these yeah. microbes.
0: Yeah, but that, but you, sent them, you sent them an email like that sounded like it came from another researcher. You obviously had read the stuff. You came up with an idea for a project. And that this guy doesn't even know you're a high school student at this point. Yeah. and, and yeah, just- yeah, that's the thing to do. That's yeah, his, you do. I think that's so cool, because I think what we're talking about, how you got in, it's is um, it's very professional what you wrote there. And I think he just thought you were another scientist. So, of course, you read it. Thank you. And in no, history, you don't say I'm a high school student in the opening <laughs> line. I think that's important. You wrote to him like you were another researcher. It's obvious you'd really read this literature. I get those kind of emails. They get read and they get answered. No, I think that's just great. And it's and the other thing that's important is your teacher encouraged you to send it. Yes. You didn't have the confidence to send it, but your teacher I said nah, you need to send this email.
2: Yes, she did. So yes, I owe this basically because this lab, um the lab that I was at, it Cause, because it was Harvard Medical School, and I think because it was such a big name, the lab I'm at currently is at Columbia, and it's like the number one suicide lab in the world. The PI, his name is Dr. John Mann, and he essentially okay. revolutionized all the s- famous scales that we have for suicide. For example, like okay. the Columbia, the CSSR, the Columbia Severity Suicide Rating Scale, that was made by our lab. And so all those like pioneer measures were came from my lab, and they... I was. I'm the only high school student in the lab right now, so they've never like really talked to a high school student before. And I think the reason that I didn't get ignored when I said that I wanted to work with postmortem brains for the lab I'm current at, currently at right now was because I sent them my project that I did with Harvard Medical. You sent them a
0: project proposal that was real.
1: Satvik's story to success is a little bit different.
3: I live in a place called Columbia, Missouri. We have a local university called University of Missouri, and it's a pretty, pretty small town in the grand scheme of things, I would say. So our local news outlet covers all types of research done by our local institution as well. So one of the research that was published in this local news was on COVID-19. And again, a lot of this, it was. Both of you were
0: during lockdown. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Both were drawing yeah. lock and See, that gave you time to to study this stuff.
3: Yep. Like yeah. I I remember uh it was in March and beginning of 2020 is when I really like I got the time to kind of go forward to my passion, which was like computer science, doing okay. research, and all of that that I never got the time to do before. And I think um I designed some new scientific applications that could be done using computer science and all of that. Right. And then I came up on this story that was on on our local news channel regarding COVID-19 drugs that were designed by this researcher in our local university. And since our town is pretty small, pretty much a lot of people know each other already. So I went ahead and emailed him again. And this time it was was like, since it was a smaller town, I, I didn't really need to give like a whole introduction or anything. So I went and asked him about... Working on COVID nineteen this time with a perspective of computer science, right? Okay. Traditionally, okay. his lab has worked on uh, biochemistry from a traditionally like only wet lab perspective. This time, I wanted to bring in more of a computer science perspective, and I talked to him about this. And then we had a Zoom meeting the very afternoon, and he wanted to look at the genomics of COVID nineteen. That's where it all started. Okay. Yep. And okay. then. I, at the same time I was also like I had learned programming the years prior to that I was interested in a broad re- range of research but then these the after like I joined with them I was I narrowed my interest down to biology the three months after I got to know him I was looking at genomic samples he, he basically taught me how all of like the the codons work and all of that well, He stuff. got
0: interested in you. In other words, this is more of a situation where he starts serving as your mentor, teaching right. you about his field because you can't do the computer science unless you know enough about his field. Right.
3: Yep. And in our local school district, we don't learn about biology until ninth grade or possibly even later. Um, So I hadn't known about how proteins work, how a, a piece of DNA turns into a protein. Okay. So it was more that learning uh curve was a lot more steeper for me. But essentially after he taught me all the basics as I went on, um, what I found was I, I was able to get some genomic samples from um, public databases. And in our first work together, we had published uh what what i found was there were three particular mutations in COVID 19 at the time in march of 2020 when it was coming out well, you're maybe getting now. this
0: out of databases not this is it's... not lab research
3: no no like okay. this is from all over the world yeah, Like databases you know, like samples... that you could access correct and there's one particular mutation that was noted by horber et al in in the journal cell um in that particular journal what the authors argued was there was this particular mutation called D614G. It's located in the spike protein of the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2. A
0: nasty and, part of it.
3: Yep. <laughs> and then it induces uh, a stronger ACE2 binding, thus a higher infectivity, right? Now in other words, it sticks in the spike and does that better, kind of. Yep, exactly. Right. And then what I had found is there are also... Um, when I did my genome analysis, I did it in two other proteins, similar to this one. I focused in on the RNA polymerase because now you're still all
0: during lockdown. So there's all being done over zoom and. Yep. And that year I did not ask another mundane question. A genome analysis, is this something that can be done on ordinary computers or do you have to have access to something special or could your desktop do it?
3: I could have I did it on my desktop. I um, did it on the
0: desktop. Is... Okay because I'm always figuring out how to how to get into things and th- that all of this stuff was possible on a home desktop right. that you would have had during lockdown.
3: Yes. And um thankfully I did um uh, with uh, all of that and then this happened until like uh I think I I worked with him remotely until 2021 and then that's when I transitioned to working in person with but him. By
0: that time you'd already worked with him and he saw you were a good scientist.
3: Yeah. And where that went was um, that particular mutation. I observed that there were two other mutations that would coexist with them nearly every single time.
0: And that's stuff you found by looking in the databases.
3: Right, yeah. right. And looking in the database combined that with a little bit of computational utilities I designed. What what that gave me is these three mutations. We published an article at the so time when, when in you, September you, you, of 2020.
0: You're doing really high level computer science. Did you just yes. self taught on all this?
3: Yeah. Amazing. yeah. For me, I, the reason like I, I wanted to teach this to myself is because I'm more of a learner that I just need to get into the examples to actually learn it rather than like if I'm taught something, it'll work. But I think if I actually get my hands dirty, it works a lot better. So I learned it that way.
0: And so uh, you obviously now did you have any programming in high school?
3: I, I took programming after I learned programming uh, because okay, I learned. All right, now I
0: want to find out, because how <laughs> did you get started getting interested in programming? How did that start?
3: For me, um, that story goes back uh, a long time because I've always been interested in in Apple, the company Apple. And now How
0: old were you when you got interested in Apple?
3: I would say second grade or first grade. You are in
0: second grade, so you're not playing yeah. video games. You want to find out about Apple.
3: Okay. Yeah, it's always been like I always I was always passionate about technology. I should put it that way. Any type of technology, I've always loved computers. So I think I never got the time to actually like drill into computers until the COVID 19 pandemic. In so, other words,
0: you had this pandemic. background interest and then COVID seen both of the projects, COVID provided the time. Yep. To do it. And now you taught yourself programming online way before COVID started.
3: Um, I think it was maybe November of 2019, maybe just, uh, September of 2019 when I got started. But uh, when COVID-19 hit, I could spend around eight hours a day trying to actually get it done rather than just maybe 30 or 40 minutes a day.
0: What was your first programming thing you ever did as a kid? What was it? Um, how did you get started at it?
3: So I think in January of 2020, uh, maybe maybe a little earlier than that, I'm not sure about the exact date, but I think it was February 2020. I might be wrong. But essentially, I'd read a an article um, in the Journal of Chemical Education. It was regarding a system they had to measure the chemical spectrum of uh, of a particular chemical reaction that is taking place.
0: Okay, so now you're interested, Now you have, The thing is, a lot of these programs cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars to access. So you had to get into open access stuff Yep, weren't shelling out two hundred bucks, thousand bucks, uh to get into some kind of proprietary software.
3: No, so this was a this was a like a journal article that they had proposed this new software that would be able to like graph the, how the colors changed okay. in a particular reaction. That might sound simple, but it has profound implications. So like whenever you see some particular particle forming in a reaction, you can measure when that happens in that reaction through that, through that uh, particular mechanism. The problem was that I looked at that and I thought, well, I can probably replicate this with my Python knowledge that I now have.
0: All right, now so, when did you start getting your Python knowledge? Okay, that's programming. How old were you when you learned Python? How did you get started in that?
3: I think it was... Um, pretty late for uh, many people I would say. It's like later 8th grade maybe starting. So like 8th grade, so you basically hadn't touched programming
0: Yeah. until no. you got to 8th grade I had known about it I hadn't touched it. You no, know, but I've actually done it No. So what got you, you had to learn Python. What got right. you interested in uh, uh, how did you find the, the places to learn it? I These think questions uh, I get asked by parents, so I'm really interested in you know where you got your first Python stuff to learn where, where did you take your first lessons online in python
3: i think how i if i remember i think it's it's just googling a lot <laughs> um so you like python
0: classes or python courses
3: um not really courses i would say like just examples on how to make projects right uh for example like i wanted to make my i usually have an objective in mind Okay. And right. I try to figure out all the resources I need to get that objective. I think what I initially, I looked at this software that was developed by these researchers for this color spectrum. And then I looked at what I needed to make that happen. So what programming knowledge do I need to actually create this type of software? Okay. So the first, it's a computer vision software, right? So it requires. Okay, a now camera. The thing
0: is, you see, you're already into the high level stuff. What I'm interested in is how did you first get started on the lowest level programming stuff and how old were you and how and what got you started in that? You're telling me about high level stuff right now. You had to get interested in, you know, in programming.
3: Yeah. For example, like I think throughout middle school, I I've always wanted to do this, never found the time. Again, I I dabbled a little bit into programming, but COVID-19 really catalyzed it as much as you, you were dabbling. And then when COVID hit,
0: and it seemed to be true for both of you, then now is the time to do it. Yeah. Where too many other kids are just playing, you know, stupid videos over and over again, or, you know, they're not dabbling in something that could really lead to something serious, serious science. You know, I'm seeing too many kids with an autism while are playing video games in the basement going nowhere. They're not even learning how to program video games. You see where well, you're interested in finding out how the things worked, how the programming worked. What were your parents' professions? What did they do?
3: They're both researchers as well. They're both so- researchers. Okay. Yep.
0: Yep. That's an important thing. You see, you were one thing I've always said about careers you got exposure. What kind of research did
3: they do? They do it in a different tangential uh like what, what,
0: what, what was field yeah. they do it in
3: medicine and cancer i guess they work together basically
0: but they were researchers yes you see that would get the idea in your mind about this thing called research but i'm really interested in looking at the pathway because i want to show parents that there's a pathway for their smart kid and you have to natasha thank your teacher Or encourage you to send that email. Yes. This gets into the the confidence. I was talking to a range management researcher about a month ago, and I I said, you need to present it to scientific conference. And she was worried about the confidence. And I said, no, go ahead and do it. I want to see students get into really good things. And both of you have different kinds of paths. Natasha was more from a personal interest. Are your parents in research?
2: well actually no my dad is a professor of business and my mom as she raised us she raised my sister and i to be very strong women so um but yeah nothing in the stem field and it's actually i get a lot of people asking me like did your parents like kind of push you to this field and i think that Well, it's really funny because when I first told my dad that I wanted to do, like, neuroscience, neuropsychiatry, more STEM-like, he was like, oh, okay, because I think he expected me to go through do the business route, and I think he wanted to, like, help me in that way, but when I told him I kind of wanted to deviate, he was like, oh, okay, well, that goes our family line of business people (laughs) because my aunt and my uncle are also, like, business. They own a restaurant, and yeah, so I'm like... The odd chief of the family. Did you have to pay to access the articles? No, actually, because I use Google Scholar and right. Science Direct, some of the articles are like
0: accessible. A yeah. lot of the articles are accessible because yes. on, it will say there's like seven versions of a paper. Yeah. You find one's accessible.
2: Yeah, and also. And, and the um,
0: abstracts are all accessible. Yes. The abstracts, the summary is always accessible. But more and more papers are being made open access. And if that research that you were reading was in the last five years, a lot of that would have been open access. Also, if it's NIH research, any government funded, which a lot of this would be, it has to be open access. So you were getting into the papers for free.
2: Yeah, and also um, even if they're not accessible, I feel that because I've de- I've done I did this before. You could email the authors. and That's right. just, Yeah, That's and just be right. like, That's I right. want to read your paper,
0: and That's they right. actually give it to you. Oh, they'll send it to you. The one thing I tell students: don't write to an author. Say, send me every paper. You know, send just send a nice email that says your paper on um, titled such and such and this. I'd really appreciate if you could send me those two papers. You know, the two papers you're actually interested in. And so that gets around the paywalls. Now that also takes time because you have to wait to get those sent sent to you. No, this has been really, really helpful. And um, I hope this gets put around to a lot of other students to show that it is possible. There's a back door and it's right there. And in both of these cases, it was very time consuming, but not expensive to go in the back door. And
1: do either you have hobbies outside of your science
2: Uh, Yeah, I play the viola. And yeah, so I do that in school. I'm like, a part of like a lot of clubs, like I'm the vice captain of my school's like science Olympiad. So that's still science. But also, I guess the one non science club that I do is um, I'm the president of my student council so that I get to dabble in like, Administrative stuff, so to have more of like interaction with my community, so that's a good opportunity. For well, me. it might have
0: helped you write that email. The opener of the email is very professional.
2: Thank you. And big so, how
1: about you? Do you?
3: I think in many ways, this has also been per- like like my hobby. It's <laughs> I think it takes up a not. It doesn't take up time. It's just my recreational activity in many ways. Other than that, I'm also I'm very interested in speech and debate. I also compete in that the president of my school's team and yeah that's wow. I think that these two are my my most passionate stuff so I I fill my time with these the stuff I'm like like the most
1: I thank you both for being here because I think your stories can inspire other young people that's exciting oh, show other young
0: people that they can do it and they did it online free resources for the most part. You can use the computer to rot your brain, or you can use it to go to really great places, become scientists, two very different types of scientists. When I was in in college, I wrote to B.F. Skinner, and I got a chance to meet him. And I remember asking him, uh, we need to learn about the brain. He says, we don't need to learn about the brain. We have operant conditioning. And then when he had a stroke, he realized, maybe we do have to learn about the brain it wasn't just all stimulus response. And I just wrote to him. Right. I remember going to visit him and looking at the uh, William James uh, building at Harvard. Couldn't believe I was there. Parked out behind it. And when I got back, I had a parking ticket on the car. Oh, no. That didn't matter. And then I wrote him another letter. Everything was mail back in those days.
1: Was your opening line similar to... Natasha's.
0: I was real, real interested when I was making my squeezing machine, so I told him about that, and he actually wrote back and said something like, "Well, I'm not what I'm most impressed with is that you wrote to me. I'm more impressed with that than with the squeezing machine." But I think it's important, you know. If Natasha hadn't sent that email, I wouldn't be here. <laughs> it would not have happened. Yeah. You no, know, you're probably both going to have fabulous careers in research, but I want to help other. Other students realize that, you know, they could do this too. The Mm -hmm. back door's there. People don't see it. No, it's been absolutely great uh, talking to everybody. And I really enjoyed uh, talking to both of you.
2: Thank you so much for having us. And Sajrak, you're so very, so smart. (laughs) I don't know what I'm saying.
0: I'm I'm, I'm an old lady now. (laughs) And I want to help. Other students find these back doors to get into fabulous jobs. And you better believe it, I'll be telling people about it, that there's ways to get into great things. You know, you went down the route of people to lead to a fabulous career. I'm seeing too many other smart kids that play video games in the basement. One of them, oh, that was disastrous. This guy ended up committing suicide. I can't go into the details because there's privacy issues, but I basically was an autistic guy, uh, forced to take university classes, wasn't very good at it, had no work skills. I don't think he saw a future. And, and uh, you know, this is where the parents overtake. He hadn't learned and never ha- actually kept a job. No, that was not a, a good thing. I think he basically um, saw no future and he was pushed into a university. I'm going to keep the major out of it because confidentiality pushed into studying a grad degree that he did poorly and and was not suited for him because the parents were pushing the university route or maybe he should have been doing something else.
1: Yeah, like Natasha said, following your passion.
0: But the thing is you have to see in both cases, you have to discover something to be a passion. See, without the exposure, I wouldn't have been in the cattle industry if I hadn't been exposed to it as a teenager. I came from a non-ag background. Okay, we'll probably need to go, but it's been wonderful talking to everybody. Thank you. Thank you
3: so much.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. You guys are superheroes. How'd You Think of That is a production of the Utah STEM Action Center in partnership with SQ Productions. Thanks for
2: listening. This podcast is based upon work supported by the National Science Foundation under grant number 1745674.